my land and my people, the memoirs of His Holiness the Dalai Lama of Tibet. Suzerainty is a vague and ancient term. Perhaps it was the nearest Western political term to describe the relations between Tibet and China from 1720 to 1890, but still, it was very inaccurate, and the use of it has misled whole generations of Western statesmen. It did not take into account the reciprocal spiritual relationship or recognize that the relationship was a personal matter between the Dalai Lamas and the Manchu emperors. There are many such ancient Eastern relationships which cannot be described in ready-made Western political terms. One explanation of the British inconsistency is that they had already secured for themselves a favorable position in Tibet which was not affected by the new agreement and were willing to give up their right to deal directly with Tibet in order to prevent Russia from doing the same. But another explanation is that the first two treaties were made by the British government of India and the third by the British government in London and that one did not really understand what the other was doing. The typically Eastern relationship of China and Tibet may well have been better understood in India than in England, but at all events neither Tibet nor China had been asked to sign this new agreement, and so it did not bind Tibet in the least to recognize China's suzerainty. One unfortunate effect of the British expedition to Lhasa was that it aroused the Chinese to the fact that their own power had disappeared, so that when the British withdrew, after severely mauling the Tibetan army, they left Tibet with very little defense against anything that the Chinese might decide to do. And the Russian agreement had the added effect of giving the Chinese a free hand in Tibet while it tied the British to non-intervention. So China, in spite of her own agreement with Britain, invaded Tibet. The Dalai Lama was forced to flee again, this time to British protection in India, and the Chinese army reached Lhasa in 1910. But the Manchu dynasty was tottering. In 1911, revolution broke out in China. The pay and supplies of the Chinese troops in Tibet were cut off, they revolted against their officials and in 1912, the Tibetans drove the remnants of them together with the Ambans out of the country. With that, Tibet became completely independent and from 1912 until the Chinese invasion in 1950, neither the Chinese nor any other state had any power whatever in Tibet. During the expulsion of the Chinese army, the Dalai Lama returned from India and he issued declarations that Tibet was an independent nation. On these declarations, a seal which had been presented to the Dalai Lamas by the Tibetan people was used instead of a seal which the Chinese had presented to them long before. Some ancient Tibetan documents had been headed with the words 
By order of the Emperor of China, the Dalai Lama is the pontiff of Buddhism. But the 13th Dalai Lama changed the heading to read, By order of Lord Buddha. But having achieved and declared our independence, and being weary of such struggles, we retired into our ancient solitude. We made no treaty with China, and consequently our de facto independence was not given a legal international form. In 1913, the British tried to settle the matter by inviting Chinese and Tibetan representatives to a conference at Shimla in India. The three representatives met on equal terms, and after a very long discussion, they initialed a draft convention. In this, the British persuaded the Tibetans to agree to their concept of Chinese suzerainty and persuaded the Chinese to agree to the autonomy of Tibet. Britain and China were to respect the territorial integrity of Tibet, not to send troops into Tibet and not to interfere with the administration of the Tibetan government. But although the Chinese representative had initialed this agreement, the Chinese government refused to sign it, and so Tibet and Britain signed a loan, with a separate declaration that China was debarred from any privileges under the agreement so long as she refused to sign it. She never signed it, and so never claimed suzerainty in this legal form. So matters remained. The Chinese government went on insisting whenever the question arose that Tibet was part of China, but meanwhile there was no Chinese with any authority whatever in Tibet, and for 48 years Tibet pursued her own independent way. They took no part in the Sino-Japanese War, and even in the Second World War, she insisted on her neutrality and refused to allow the transport of war material from India to China through Tibetan territory. Throughout this period, Tibetans never took any active steps to prove their independence to the outside world, because it never seemed to be necessary. But from time to time, other governments acted in a way which proved that they accepted it. Thus, in 1947, when a conference of all Asian countries was held in Delhi, the Tibetan delegation attended on an equal footing with the rest and the Tibetan flag flew among the flags of the other nations. In the same year, after India had become independent, her government replied to a Tibetan message in these words, the government of India would be glad to have an assurance that it is the intention of the Tibetan government to continue relations on the existing basis until new agreements are reached on matters that either party may wish to take up. This is the procedure adopted by all other countries with which India has inherited treaty relations from His Majesty's government. In 1948, a trade delegation from the government of Tibet visited India, China, France, Italy, the United Kingdom and the United States of America. And the passports which the Tibetan government had issued to the delegates were accepted by the governments of all these countries. 
For the first 22 years of our independence, there were no Chinese officials of any kind in Tibet. But in 1934, after the death of the 13th Dalai Lama, a Chinese delegation came to Lhasa to present religious offerings. After presenting the offerings, the delegation remained in Lhasa on the grounds that it wanted to complete some talks on the Sino-Tibetan border which had been left unfinished. However, the position of these Chinese was exactly the same as those of the Nepalese and British and later the Indian missions which were also in Lhasa and in 1949 even these remaining Chinese were expelled from the country. So one may sum up this brief history by saying that Tibet is a distinct and ancient nation which for many centuries enjoyed a relationship of mutual respect with China. It is true that there were times when China was strong and Tibet was weak and China invaded Tibet. Similarly, looking farther back in history, there were times when Tibet invaded China. There is no basis whatever in history for the Chinese claim that Tibet was part of China. From 1912 until the fateful year of 1950, Tibet enjoyed complete de facto independence of any other nation and our legal status is now exactly the same as it was in 1912. That status had been analyzed in the utmost detail in recent years by the International Commission of Jurists and rather than express my own opinion of it, I will quote the conclusion which that body of distinguished and impartial experts submitted to the United Nations and published in their report on the question of Tibet and the rule of law in 1959. Tibet's position on the expulsion of the Chinese in 1912 can fairly be described as one of de facto independence and there are, as explained, strong legal grounds for thinking that any form of legal subservience to China had vanished. It is therefore submitted that the events of 1911-12 mark the re-emergence of Tibet as a fully sovereign state, independent in fact and in law of Chinese control.